Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. I'm your host, David Clark, and in this episode, we've decided to release a special episode and rush it out as quickly as possible, given what's going on in financial markets around the world. As the coronavirus, or COVID-19, has dealt a huge blow to financial confidence and financial markets around the world, seeing one of the biggest declines in equity markets and investments on record. When I look across the performance of investment managers and investments since about 20 February this year, I see a sea of red. There's a handful of star performers that have managed to eke out gains or go sideways during that period, and amongst them is John Hempton of Bronte Capital. Those of you familiar with the podcast may have listened to the episode that we released with John describing his unique way of investing. Uh, We released this podcast October uh, 25, 2018. Those interested may want to go and check out the episode released in October 2018, which is number episode number 25. I think you'll enjoy this podcast and I hope you get a lot out of it during these unique times. I do emphasize that people should listen to the disclaimer at the end of the podcast and emphasize the fact that this is not designed to be specific advice, nor is it specific advice and that people are encouraged to read any product disclosure statements, information memorandums and seek advice prior to making any investments. Enjoy the podcast. John, welcome back to Inside the Rope. Thank you very much. Well, you've um, got me up here to your beach house in uh, Avalon under the guise of being able to bring my family to the beach. And it's about Uh, 18 degrees and windy and raining and not exactly pleasant. And I've woken up early this morning. Uh, We're we're recording this on the 14th of March and we're going to get it out as quick as we can because we're in very, very unusual times. And I've, I've woken up to sporting events in Australia being uh, cancelled, postponed, or run without uh, crowds, um, and the level of engagement and media coverage is sky high after a week on financial markets, which is uh, pretty much un- unprecedented in many ways. Do you maybe want to start off by giving us uh, maybe your commentary or view of what has happened? Uh, yeah, the what has happened and what is about to happen are still very different things. But what has happened is a a potentially very dangerous virus has got hold in most Western countries and will infect a proportion of the population that might be as low as 2 or 3%, but might be as high as 70. And beyond, and it will have a mortality that might be as low as 20 bips, or one-fifth of 1%, and might be as high as 3%. And we don't know. We have a fair idea, and my guess might be better than yours because I've read maybe 70 academic papers and I've got a mathematician in my team modelling it, but it's still a guess. Um, it also leads to a couple of interesting things. I mean, the most I'll, I'll give you good, good examples and bad examples. The best example of a country that seems to have handled it is Singapore. Singapore has had about 160 or so cases. There was a little splurge again that took it from 100 to about 140 last week. They find clusters. They do incredible contact tracing on every cluster. 
If you're sick, they take your phone, they back work out exactly where you've traveled, they ask you for every contact, and they issue mandatory quarantine orders for everybody that you've contacted. So far, they've mandatorily quarantined about 5,000 people in their home. If you break the quarantine, you get arrested, and you'll, um, if you're a foreign worker, you get deported never to come back to Singapore, but they will jail their own citizens for this. So this has the, been a big change. Maybe if we can touch... The forward. impact on civil liberties yes. is serious, but they have managed to control the outbreak almost totally. There have been no deaths so far, and at the end it looks like there will only be a handful. At the other end, we have a country that has hidden everything, put its head in the sand and pretended it didn't happen, and that's Iran. It's very hard to work out what's happening because it's Iran and there are no good sources of information, but the satellite news, for instance, tells you that they're digging mass graves outside Qum. They say they have 457 dead, but you're not digging mass graves when you have 457 dead. The scale of difference between one of the, those two is amazing. One of those things is a blip, just a bad flu, and some breach on civil liberties and some restrictions on social movement for a while. And the other one is a grand catastrophe. And both those possibilities are open at the moment. I've never seen a situation where in one month's time the world is going to be radically different or it might not be, and we really don't know. And you can see it, you know, you can see it in the stats, you can see it in follow-up news broadcasts from Italy, you can follow the hospitals collapsing, but you can also follow Singapore, and it really isn't much of a problem. And in Hong Kong, it's not much of a problem. In China, where they've restricted movement a great deal, it's not much of a problem. If the Chinese containment hadn't worked, then Shanghai would look like at the moment, or look like Milan, much worse than Milan. But the Chinese containment has worked. It seems that there's such a massive range of outcomes. It, as a money manager who's meant to protect you through all of the range of outcomes and at least get reasonable results throughout the range of outcomes, this is a hard and difficult time. Now, it was easier a month ago. And the reason it was easier a month ago was we were reading the papers and we were seeing that these are not the newspapers, these are the academic papers. And we were seeing that very bad outcomes were possible. And the most extreme visible version of it was when China officially had 19 deaths. In other words, it was a very small outbreak. They were building mass hospitals. Now, those two things didn't compute. They either didn't have 19 deaths or they didn't need to build mass hospitals. Right? And yet, at the time, markets were pricing downside protection very cheaply. So this is mid-February? Mid-February. Mid-early February. And we could see a massive disconnect between the range of outcomes that were possible in the world and the, ins and the price of insuring against those outcomes. So we bought some insurance. Alas, that disconnect isn't there anymore. The markets are incredibly volatile and the range of outcomes is incredibly large. So since that date, what have markets done? Well, there are two, three things I want to talk about them doing. The first and the obvious one, if you just look at equity markets, is that they've fallen. And they've fallen a lot. Um, last, 
Last, the week just ended, Europe was down 19% despite having bounced hard to, to, on two days. Most stocks are 30-35% lower than they were you know, at their peaks only a few months ago. And the market itself is, um, went, is over 20% below its all-time peak, which was less than a couple of months ago. The second thing that's happened is that the markets have become incredibly volatile. There's an index called the VIX, and I don't mean to get into technicalities because it's not the right audience, but you do need this for, to think about how you know, we think about that. Um, the VIX measures an estimate of volatility that's embedded in the option prices. A VIX of 16, which is an ordinary sort of number, says that the option market is pricing it such that 16% is one standard deviation move over a year. Which means that if the VIX is 16, the market's telling you that it expects two-thirds of the time the market to be plus or minus 16%, and one-third of the time it to be more than plus or minus 16%. So two-thirds of the time less than 16, one-third more than 16. That's a typical number. It turns out that 16% per year, and I'm not going to explain the maths, is about 1% per trading day. So a VIX of 16 also says that the market expects that two-thirds of trading days will be less than 1% up or down, and one-third will be more than 1% up and down. Now, if I go back to February, the market was pricing volatility at 11, which is a remarkably quiescent market. I mean, a lot of the time the markets are more than 11% up in a year, but the volatility index was only pricing it as if that happened a third of the time. Now, we could buy volatility, buy options at those prices in February, and we did, because we thought there was more than a third chance that the market would have a very weird outcome this year. And if you could buy it, and we thought there was more than a third chance because we were reading the academic books and watching what was happening in China and thinking, this doesn't look very nice. These days, and here we are a month later, and the volatility index is pricing over 50. This implies market movements of over three percentage points per day are predicted by the market. Now the number, you know, the whole of last year we had a couple of days that were more than 2%. That was it. Right? Uh, sort of one, th the market is predicting almost a third of days, and a couple of days ago it was, a, you know, a third of days to be over 4% um, movement. Now, that's high, a ridiculously high level of volatility by historic standards. But in fact, the volatility in the market's even higher than that. Um, the last two days, the American stock market went down by basically 10% and up by 9%. It went up by 4 or 5% in the last couple of minutes of trading today. I mean, it's astonishing amounts of volatility. So the uncertainty that we had in February, everybody has now. And what was that insurance that you bought in February? There were several bits. We bought some out-of-the-money put options on the Stocks 50, which is a 
um, index of the 50 largest companies in Europe. We bought more of those than we bought American. And there were two reasons we bought more, more European than American. The first was that European volatility was priced lower than American volatility. So the protection was cheaper to buy in Europe. And the second reason was that the European market is full of industrial companies and luxury good companies and tourist style companies, whereas the American market is full of tech and pharma. And if you're, say, a luxury good maker, this looks particularly bad for you. If you're Siemens, who sells capital equipment, right, you know, food is a little bit cyclic, washing machines are very cyclic, right, um, machines to make washing machines are very, very cyclic. Siemens is a long way up the capital equipment chain, and so it's a very cyclic business. And the European index looked to me to be both more vulnerable, but with lower volatility. So we bought a lot of European index, and then we bought some specific, some option protection on some specific financials in Europe, and I really wouldn't like to go into those, but they turned out to be by far the best trades. And we also bought a small amount of puts on the American index. Now, it turned out to, it turned out to work better than it should, because not only was Europe more vulnerable, but much to my surprise, Europe was infected first. Italy has been, you know, an epicenter of it. And in a bad case, what is happening in Italy now will happen in New York in two weeks and will get worse from there. And has it been particularly bad in your view in Italy because they haven't had the sort of governmental controls that somewhere like China has had or Singapore? Okay. There are two parts to that question. Yes, it's quite, quite clear that Italy d does not have the ability or willingness to crack down on movement in the same way that China did, or Singapore did. But they have cracked down on movement pretty hard once the catastrophe came. Right? Um, they've closed all shops in Singapore that are not grocers or pharmacies. You can't get your hair done in Singapore, sorry, in Italy, anywhere in Italy. They've closed the schools. They've closed the tavernas. They've closed the coffee shops. I don't know how it, what it means to be Italian and not be able to go to a, a coffee shop and have a coffee or go to the same shop later in the afternoon and have a Campari and soda. I just don't even know what it means. You know, this isn't the Italy I, I love. <laughs> right? But So the crackdown in it, Italy came late. Then there are other reasons it could be Italy. Italy is the same latitude as Cornwall. It's the same latitude as some cities in China that were hit very hard. It may be climatic. We don't know. It might be that Italians like to kiss each other. We don't know. Right? It might also be that some of the Asian cities that have had problems are because Asian people phlegm more in the street than Westerners. We don't know. Right? The range of things here that we don't know is astonishing. Mm. Right. We don't know how, for instance, whether warm weather keeps it down, which is why Sydney is not looking like Rome at the moment, or looking like Milan at the moment, or why, for instance, there's not a massive outbreak in Bali. John, can we just quickly touch on, whilst markets and the Australian markets off something like 30% since 20 uh, February, how has your fund performed 
over that period? Well, we're up. And we were up in January, which was an up market, and we were up in February, and we're up so far this month as well. Not by a lot, right? Um, uh, we're up in US dollars, so in Australian dollars, we're up a little bit further. Because the Australian dollar was printing with a 61 handle this morning. I was going, goo goo ga ga, that's a lot, that's a weak a dollar. So that's a remarkable feat, because I, I would imagine if you look at all the investors around the world and all the funds around the world, um, there wouldn't be too many that are up over that period. I, I, I talked to some macro fund people and they're all up. And the reason, but macro is a strategy that requires lots of volatility. And so the macro fund people have had five bad years because vol was very low and are having an astonishingly good year now. We've had five, we've had 10 pretty good years. And we're still having a good year now. So, I mean, in that sense, we're certain that we're no means the best fund in the world. But given that we were not impaired during the bull market and the low volatility phase, and we're still up in the bear market, that's a good outcome. Now, we would, had we not taken the insurance, be down. We would be down way less than half of market. Yes. Right? Maybe 0 0.4, 0 0.3 of market, but we would still be down. And how long does your protection last for? And I guess then... That's my biggest angst. The big question then becomes, my, a, a, when does it come off? And then B, what do you do then? Okay. Can I crank back to the sure. third thing that... Because I said three things were going on in markets. The first is that they'd fallen. The second is that volatility had risen. The third one is more subtle because you don't see it because there's no corporate bond market here. But all sorts of financing instruments and second-tier, less liquid instruments have become no bid. So in the old days, junk bonds used to trade sort of two percentage points yield below treasuries or below investment-grade bonds. And now they don't trade at all, right? Um, a whole lot of the junk bond market has become an 80-20 market meaning 80 offer, 20 bid. Wow. Right. And there has been no debt issuance at corporate debt for a few weeks now in America. There is an awful lot of the American economy that is financed through things that can no longer attract bid. Now, if you're the Fed, you're going to try and encourage banks or somebody to bid on this stuff. Right. Or maybe you'll buy it yourself in the end if you get really desperate. But the market has gone for things that don't actually impact Australian retail investors has gone very illiquid. So there's massive liquidity in stocks and there's a complete lack of liquidity in off-the-run bonds. And that's a harbinger of catastrophe, right? of financial catastrophe. Now, the truth is that the financial catastrophe, if there is one, isn't dependent on finance markets. It's dependent on the virus, right? So whilst I say that the market, you know, is, hard, you know, is in some sense predict, predicting a catastrophe, I'm not really adding any value, right? The, the real outcome is the range of outcomes that can come from the virus. Now, as for our protection, we bought short-dated protection. 
protection is expensive at the best of times. You can't, you can't protect the downside in the market without giving up some returns. And for that reason, we limited the amount we bought. In retrospect, I would have liked to buy five times as much and then we'd be up 50% or 60% and you'd look at me as some kind of seventh genius. But we weren't that aggressive, right? We were about protecting our clients' money, not about making a huge profit. We've made some money along the way, but that wasn't the motivation. We weren't speculating, we were running for cover. Um, that protection, however, was priced very cheaply, and we only bought short-dated protection because we were doing mathematical models from the data in the academic papers and thinking, well, all hell's going to break loose by April. If we're rock, you know, if the world is a bad outcome, all hell breaks loose by April, so April puts are going to be plenty adequate. And as it turned out, all hell is going to break loose by April. Well, I'm wrong about this. I hope I'm wrong about this but the protection has worked extremely well. Come April, that protection will have almost entirely rolled off and the VIX isn't trading at 11 anymore, it's trading at 50. So the cost of that protection so is skyrocketed. The cost of the protection is skyrocketed and protection is expensive even when the volatility is low. When the volatility is high, protection is way, way, way too expensive. You know, you give up five, seven percentage points of return in almost all circumstances, just, right, you might as well just go to cash. And we don't want to go to cash. Values aren't too bad in some of the things we own. So, you know, we're, un we're going to be less protected by April. So at the moment, your long positions are around what level? Well, they started at about 120% of the fund. They're now, now only 89% of the fund, right? Our long positions have come down a lot, and the fund has gone up a little bit. And the short positions? Well, they've also gone down a lot, right? The short yes. position started at 69% of the fund, and they're now well below 30% of the fund. The short positions have done really great. So you're now faced with this question when they roll off, what to do now? Yeah, uh, and, and what are the range of outcomes you think are likely? And then what sort of uh, probability do you assign to each of those ranges? Well, the, actually, that's, the probability we assign to each of the ranges isn't the right question. It's what are the bad end of the ranges look like? Mm -hmm. Are our results acceptable? if the shit really hits the fan, right? I'm not interested in particularly estimating the range because that pretends that I know more about the future than I do about the past and present. If you think, if you ask me the probability weight whether Australian hospitals were going to collapse under the load by say 15 April, my guess is really as good as yours. In other words, it's not very good at all. And if I were to try and rank, rank a bet on that, I'd be wrong. My question is, how do I make sure that the returns that I get are not compromised by the odd fat tail event that I have to face? Right? I want to be protected against 
horrible things. And protected against horrible things means maybe losing 10% in a horrible environment, right? Because if we lost 10%, none of our long-term clients from here, none of our long-term clients would have any particular reason to complain. We'd be extremely annoyed, but the outcome would be okay. We would live on, fight another day, and the strategy would work in the future. Right Now, I don't want to lose 10%, but my big concern is, not, is just how do we navigate an environment that's this uncertain right, and get results that are acceptable a year from now, two years from now, five years from now. I don't want to be a hero. Right, but more than not wanting to be a hero, I don't want to be a zero. I just don't like the risks that some people take and I don't want to take them myself. Now, I cannot tell you how much it fills me with angst that I can't buy more protection in April. I mean, it was, it was astonishingly cheap to protect ourselves in February. I mean, we have one option position we bought on a European financial institution that's a 50-bagger. We've made 50 times our money on that tiny bit of protection. The only problem is that we only put 15%, 15 basis points of the fund into that protection. 0.15%. Now, when you make 50 times your money on 0.15%, it's still an okay outcome. And it is the reason why we're positive and the market's negative. But I wish I'd done more. right? But that 0.15% protection, to buy something like that now would cost me probably three or four percent, right? It just doesn't, the maths don't work anymore. And I'm going to get to the middle of April and our fund is going to be undelivered, right? Because, you know, we normally work with sort of 120 long, 60 short. And we're currently more like 85 or 84 long, 40, you know, 38 short. And we've been adding longs and shorts the whole way down. We've been lengthening, we've been buying things on the way down, and we've been shorting some more stuff, and we still can't keep keep up. The size of the movements is gargantuan, and there's no protection after mid-April. And John, are your longs still, are you operating in, in the past, correct me if I'm wrong, that you've had much of a model where you will have uh, some really good core long positions that you love and you get to add to them. We've added to some of when them. When some of the shorts. But part of the issue is that, you know, some of our best longs haven't gone down very much. Right? I mean, zero, which is the only Australian one, which is why I mention it, it's a core position in the fund, it's 80. Right? It was 89 at peak. Right? And it was the best single performed stock in the ASX 200 last week. And much to my joy, I only have four positions in the ASX 200 and two of them were in the worst 10 and one of them was in was the best performer and the other one was still down, it was a short. So, you know, it's been okay for us, but I can't add to that long. And I can't add to Swedish Match, which is a, a Scandinavian tobacco or nicotine company. We, um, that has barely gone down either because, you know, it's not particularly affected. We've had one or two longs hit. Um, we own a company, well, we own Campari, which defines being young, cool, and Italian. 
Um, it also does those wonderful pink sort of Aperol drinks that they sell, serve at the Australian Open. And that is probably the easiest stock for us to understand in Milan. And it's come down a long way. And we've added a few basis points along the way. It's not a big position for the fund, but we've added, we've bought a little bit more as the you know, Italian market collapsed. There's not much that we want to buy in Italy. Right? Most of the companies there we don't like. Um, John, if we could maybe change speeds here a little bit and from a helicopter back up again in terms of where this is going. And I said you, you've mentioned you've read a lot and looked at a lot of different papers. I don't know if you've looked at uh, much of Chris Joy's uh, publication, but I, th I think the theme of what he's been talking about is we need to see more central bank stimulus and they need to be quicker and that this is likely to be I actually think that's a short, all, sharp I, I actually think that's response. wrong. Most economic crises start in financial institutions. They start where you have people in financial markets that have been doing stupid things and say stupid things with leverage and they've got themselves overextended and then they pull back. And the solution to a lot of financial crises is at least make sure that there's enough liquidity that sensible things get done by financial markets and the economy doesn't stop. So central banks are very good at solving that. The flip side is that this financial crisis isn't starting in the financial crisis. It's starting with a virus that's too small to see. The outcomes are going to be determined by the virus. And the central bank can't do anything about that. Right? Um, it can paper over cracks caused by the virus, but it's not going to save anybody's life. And actually, I think central banks are going to wind up killing people. And the reason is that if you look at Singapore, what you need to do is slow economic activity. You need to slow people going out to restaurants. You need to slow movie theatres. I have tickets to see Patti Smith in April. It's um, a running joke in my family that every time Patti Smith comes to Australia, my wife and I buy tickets and every time work interferes. And so I have now missed four Patti Smith concerts and I'm about to miss the fifth one, but this time because of a virus. But if central banks get everybody moving and going out to restaurants and being social, they'll actually kill people, right? I, I, and I, I, the problem here is there's an old joke that to a man with a hammer, every problem is a nail. Mm -hmm. And in this economy, almost the only hammer we have is central bank intervention. So... You know, I joked a while back on Twitter, there was a lovely story, which was just clickbait, about NASA confirming this huge asteroid was heading towards Earth. And if you click through the story, you realise that NASA was confirming, yes, it was on the, a sort of path that will miss by a million kilometres. But my, the headline was spectacular, you know, loss of civilization on Earth type headline. And I tweeted that, you know, don't worry, central bank easing will fix this. <laughs> Right? And no, central bank easing can't fix an asteroid plummeting towards the Earth. And if you happen to get this virus and you're dying of pneumonia, right, and that will probably happen to one, of, one or two of your listeners, cutting interest rates isn't going to do anything. Then there's this awful thing which 
is absolutely clearly visible in policy responses, which is everybody knows that if you do a Chinese-style stop, the economic costs are enormous. And it is appropriate that governments try and minimize the economic cost of controlling this virus. Right? And that will require some delicate balancing acts. But I saw a minister the other day saying, you know, being asked directly if it was all right to go to work with a runny nose. Right? And the answer to that is no. Right? And he equivocated. He just equivocated. And I thought to myself, oh, is that where we are up on economic costs? You mean, where, where, are you all right to die so that I'm a little bit richer? Right? No, it, right, that's not the right solution here. The right solution is going to be a solution con con conceived around the virus, not conceived around the, the stock market and the financial market. Oh, and incidentally, no, it's not right to go to work with a runny nose. If you brought that virus into my business, you will do me a large amount of economic harm. Right? I can deal without that. It's not even economically right, let alone socially or morally right, to go to work when sick. There was a case the other day of a hotel worker who had been told that he was meant to quarantine because he was con a confirmed infection, and he went to work in a hotel. Now, the ho now, in this case, the hotel worker had no other income and would have starved. Right? In America, that's going to be a really big problem because there's no underlying welfare. Here, at least, you know, it's not that big a problem. But there are still, you know, you've still got to pay people to self-quarantine because if you don't pay them to self-quarantine, they'll go do their casual jobs and then they'll infect people and other people will die. But the idea that this is a monetary problem is economists and central bankers and market participants thinking through the problem from their perspective, where everything's a monetary problem and every solution is central bank easing. Right? This is a virus problem. John, how likely is it, do you believe, that by the time your insurance rolls off in April, that we'll have a much clearer picture I think that's highly likely. Of what this looks like. That's highly likely. And, and what, what are the outcomes do you think that are most likely at that point? Honest and okay. Yep. It's extremely likely that in the next four weeks, because our insurance runs off in about four weeks, this virus will have tipped its hand and we will know whether New York looks like Mexico or Cum or Singapore. Or Sydney looks like Mexico, Cum or Singapore. All three outcomes are out. Cum is the complete disaster where you know, they're building mass graves on the edge of town. And Singapore is a very mild case. At that point, my expectation is that the vol will be much lower in the market because the outcome is much more certain. And so maybe insurance will be cheaper, but I won't feel like I need it. At least I'm sort of hoping that's the outcome. But whether... but do I have any edge over any of your other listeners in working out whether Sydney or New York is going to look like Cum or Singapore? No, I don't. Don't ask me what the virus is going to look like because I don't know. I have my own weighting of probabilities, but that's even not very relevant. 
right? My weighting is not very good. I wish I knew, right? I wish I was omniscient and I actually knew which way the, way the world was always going to be and I could make 300% in markets, but at that point I probably wouldn't need any clients either. For, for our listeners out there who are sitting there looking at the news reports and seeing David Koch and the teams and the news selling ad advertisements with sensationalist headlines and, and in some cases very rightfully so, um, what sort of advice or guidance would you give them in terms of how to think about this and managing uh, themselves I, I, and the their family? The first requirement is actually not to manage your financial risk. The first requirement is to manage your personal risk for you and your family. Statistically, and this is very solid, kids are not likely to get, they're likely to catch the virus, but they're not likely to get very sick. If you're in your 20s, you could get very sick, but you're not likely to die, right? There's 10 basis points of mortality at best. If you're above 50, I figure that you're more than a 1% chance of dying if you get the virus. And if you're a male and a smoker and you're above 50, you're a lot more than that. If you're 70 or 80, it's not very good at all. You have 10, 15% mortalities. Your first requirement is to find the vulnerable people you have and cocoon them, right? So if you have old people in the house, try and make sure that they don't get the virus. And unfortunately, that's going to deny them one of their greatest pleasures in life, which is that you have to separate the grandkids from them, right? Because the kids are little petri dishes that will give it to the old people. Right? So the first one is just how do you live your life in an environment where if you're 30-something, you're not very much at risk, but if you're 70-something, you're a lot at risk, and there's a big generational difference. The second one is to understand the mode of infection. And now, I'm get, now I've talked to a bunch of epidemiologists, right? and the honest answer is their knowledge is better than my knowledge, so I'm just going to repeat it. You can get it from somebody sneezing, but the most likely way you're going to get it, if you get it, is from what is called a fomite. And a fomite is just an infected surface that touches, the, that has the virus on it. And the classic sort of idea is, I, I'm sick, I touch my nose, I touch a door handle, you touch the door handle, you then touch your nose and you get the virus. Or you touch the iPhone. Right. Well, phones are going to be fomites. Mm -hmm. But the common piece of advice is try not to touch fomites. And if you do touch fomites, wash your hands and don't touch your face. And then they say, wash your hands again. And then they say, wash your hands again. If they're getting sophisticated, they say, wash your hands with soap and not hand wash. The hand washers are antibacterial, but what you want is that the virus is covered in a lipid, and if you lipids are very, very thin layers of lipids are well broken down by soap, so soap will make the virus inactive. So use soap, not hand wash. Alcohol will do, but soap is better, right? But the general advice is wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands, right? Um, 
there's a lovely video of Gloria Jack singing, you know, I shall survive while washing her hands, <laughs> right? But, you know, sing that for 10 seconds whilst you're washing your hands. It's exactly the, exactly the sort of tip you need. And then when you touch a thomite, right, and you'll know it, you know, a lift button, right, a door handle, something that other people touch, it's time for the alcohol wash. Petrol bowsers are a particular one. But the real solid one is your own phone. Right? If you go out with your phone, you can wind up touching some surface or transferring it to your phone. You wash your hand, but the virus remains on your phone. I've seen people suggest, and I'm not opposed to the idea, but I don't know how well it would work, that you should put your phone in a plastic bag when you go out of the house, right? and then have a phone that's clean inside, or you use disinfectant wipes, alcohol wipes on your phone. Alcohol is the right thing, not bacterial, antibacterials because it's a virus. But the truth is, in the worst case, all that's going to do is probably delay the time that you get infected till after everybody else is infected. That's still a plus. And the reason it's still a plus is that, in the worst case, you want to be in after the round because the hospitals will be back to normal, the hospitals will know what they're doing, your mortality rate will be lower. If you're thinking about this as a financial thing, and you probably do need to, it's still secondary. I mean, I'm sort of a little bit upset by, you know, not upset, but amu merrily amused by the centrist it, you know, people who seem to think that because they're financial people, the world revolves around them and that the solution to a virus is financial. Right. Ultimately, the solution to a virus will be a vaccine, and it's scientists, not finance people or central banks, that I'm really waiting for. And John, that's the advice on looking after themselves in terms of how they should be thinking about their investments, and is it, is it just hang on it, to the ride and roll out? It, yeah, I don't think it changes very much. Um, highly levered investments are a are a risky idea at the best of times. I'm, if I'm in a bad case, the virus should probably see the end of the private equity bubble, right? Mm -hmm. Because highly levered investments work beautifully till they don't, and you know, in the bad case, this is going to be one of those circumstances where they don't. Um, but if you're sensibly invest, you're not financially stressed. You've got right then sit it out. And by and large, that's what we're going to do. We, we bought some protection against the first bit and it worked beautifully. It's going to turn to cash. And we have to cleverly invest that cash. But ultimately, it's a sit it out issue. I mean, I, don't, I haven't a clue what the outcome is, really. Right? I mean, you might think that it's great to go to all cash, but at the moment, the central banks are pumping liquidity into a system that seems to have plenty of liquidity, right? I mean, part of the reason why the central banks can print money when, without inflation when there's a sort of financial crisis is that usually they're pumping liquidity into a system that's short of it. Now they're pumping liquidity into a system just because that's the only hammer that they're, you know, they're a man with a hammer and that's a nail. Every problem is a nail. So, you know, in my range of outcomes is a burst of inflation. I don't know, right? 
I genuinely don't know. Right. My usual solution is that the core of your portfolio should be highly superior businesses of some description that you can hold for decades. And those are the core of my portfolio too. And what we do around the side is interesting. Right. And so far has been fairly successful, touch wood. Right. But we manage it for downside risk. And the winner at the end is the person who owns the biggest pile of good, high-quality businesses throwing off lots of cash. Actually, that's, again, putting a cart before a horse. The winner at the end is the person with the really good family relationships where everybody loves them. But the financial winner at the end is the person that holds the biggest pile of cash. Right? And, again, don't underestimate that because you know if you think that the winner at the end is the guy that holds the biggest pile of cash you're you're tempted to lever and do silly things in order to be the winner if you think the winner at the end is the person that has the good stable family relationships and the happy you know the happy children and right then you're temp you're not tempted to risk what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need right? and that remains my advice always, right? Don't risk what you have and need for what you don't have and don't need. John, I think that's a wonderful place to pull stumps on it. Thank you very much it's a for, for uh, putting it together. Um, we are going to get it out reasonably smartly. Josh is on uh, my son who edits it. Um, he, he's going to break into his social life at university and get it out for us. Uh, quick smart, he tells me. So thanks, thanks for being on the show. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting codacapital.com. Any views expressed in this recording represent the personal opinions of the speaker and do not represent the view of any other party. If this recording contains reference to any financial products, that reference does not constitute advice or recommendation and may not be relied upon. Listeners in Australia are encouraged to visit www.moneysmart.gov.au to obtain information regarding financial advice and investments.